Tom Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T in your Tilo, Tom Fitzgerald. I'm here with the low in your Tilo, Lorenzo Marquez, my lovely husband. Hello. And of course, as soon as we started talking, Tab Hunter, our gigantic cat, jumped up on the table. He's so right here with we'll us. We'll see if he knocks everything over. <laughs> He's adorable. Um, how are you, Lou? I'm fine. Uh, it, it's funny because we've been inside the apartment for so long, and now I'm taking all the sweatpants and hoodies and stuff. And, it, and I feel like, oh, I, I don't know. It feels weird to wear them because usually I'm out all the time, and then when I come, when I come home, I wear sweatpants. So I feel like kind of like a... Um, a reward <laughs> for like being out doing things right, right, and then right. you come home and you're like, oh, okay, now it's time to relax. I'm going to put my sweatpants on. And now it's just like, okay, well, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying not to. Um, I, I mean, I pretty much adhere to this all year so far, but I'm trying not to lapse into wearing sweatpants all day. Um, I hmm. still put on. I know you always say that. I remember shorts, you said that to And me. as the weather gets colder, I'm going to put on jeans because I feel like as as long as I wear something that has a button or a, <laughs> a snap of some a sort, uh, something that doesn't tie around your waist, I do a little bit better on the whole not eating everything in sight it's, sort it's of thing. It's true. It's true. If you put if you put sweatpants on, forget it. You have no idea. No. <laughs> of anything. No. I really try I, I try not to um <laughs> to lapse into that too much. It's actually only in the last couple of years that I allowed myself to even own sweatpants. I would not, uh, I didn't used to mm. own them at all. Interesting. Um, because, because of that very reason, because I, you know, I am prone to gaining weight and I know if I, if I wear them too much, I'll just, I'll never watch what I eat. Um, didn't mean to start off like anyway. that. I'm staring at our uh, yes. collection of Halloween salt and pepper shakers that we just put out. Uh, I know Lorenzo wanted to talk about this. We, um, it's interesting. I think mainly it, this started happening for me after my mom died five years ago. Uh, I started feeling like I needed to mark the seasons in a way that I never... We all, you, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you know that we do Christmas in a big, big, yeah, big Christmas way. Yeah, Christmas always been big. But uh, I never particularly cared about decorating the home for anything else because, you know, we're, we don't have children. We don't need right. to do that sort of thing. Um, especially something like Halloween or Easter, which is... Well, Easter is so religious, but it's also child-oriented, and so is Halloween in a lot of ways. Um, but my mom died and I realized after she was gone that I, I was like, well, I, I think I kind of relied on going to visit my mom because my mom loved, she decorated for St. Patrick's Day, she decorated right. for Thanksgiving. Um, and I, how much I kind of relied on that stuff to help me check off the year a little bit. And it felt like a void in my life. So in the last few years, I've started buying things like Halloween decorations. Easter and, stuff, yeah, too. Um, Easter, yeah, Easter stuff, and I don't. We don't really have Thanksgiving decorations. What is a Thanksgiving decoration? No, we have a couple of things because we we had Thanksgiving uh, dinner at our place twice. Yeah, but we don't put up turkeys. No, or anything no, like but that. We, so Pilgrims. we did buy a few things. Uh, so this year, I um, I was, and when I say we have Halloween decorations, I mean we have like candy dishes, and I have a I collect um, salt and pepper shakers. I have for a while now, and I have they're themed you know and i have some for christmas and i mm -hmm. i actually do have a couple thir uh, turkeys for thanksgiving last year i bought uh, a salt and pepper shaker where the salt was a ghost and the pepper was um <laughs> a, 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 like a wheelbarrow full of pumpkins 
And this year I bought two black hats in orange collars with little orange hats on. They're them. like vintage spire. They're vintage style. They look very 1930s. Yeah. Bought a runner for the table with pumpkins and black hats on it. And we have um, a couple felt pieces that we bought over the years. Mm-hmm. We have a garland of black hat heads that are that are cut out of felt. It's really cute. Oh my we, god, I forgot about yeah, it. I can't, yeah, I kind of can't wait to put that stuff up. Because we're in, we're not going out all that much. Right. And this year I was like, I think I really kind of want a little bit more Halloween in my life because more, we're not yeah. going to go out to Halloween parties or, you know, whatever. We're just not going to do that. So um, I went and looked on uh, Amazon um, just to tie this into what you know about our public blogging life. <laughs> in the, I think it was the final season of Mad Men. Uh, there was, uh, we were writing Mad Style, and there were scenes that were set in the office around Halloween, and they had all of these 1960s Halloween decorations. So I did research back in the day, so I could write about them authoritatively, you know, just to mention them in the background. And what I found out back then was that there was a company called Beisel, B-E-I-S-T-L-E, which basically invented the sort of paper cutout Halloween decorations that you, you know, you taped to your front windows or whatever like that, the pumpkins and the scarecrows and, and the witches and the cats and all that. And if you go to, and there's still an existence, Bicel. And if you go to the uh, Amazon and you go to their Bicel store, or if you go to the Bicel.com site, um, all of all those like yeah. vintage, like first off, my whole childhood just came up before my eyes because it was all the stuff from like the 70s that my mom right. used to put in the windows. But because the company's been around since like 1920, actually, it's been around since 1900. I, I did look this up the other night. It's been around since 1900. And in 1920, it started importing German uh, huh. cut paper designs. And it pretty much invented wow. Halloween decorations as nice. we know them. So. I went and looked to see if they still have like the old, old, old ones. And they do. They have these really cool, old, old, old Halloween decorations from like the 1920s and the 1930s done in a very 1920s style. So, and they're not expensive. Like you can get like four or five of them for five or six bucks. Mm -hmm. They're just cardboard. That's all they are. And they stopped creating new ones, right? And then just... No, they still have new ones. No. Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bicel still, they have... Everything. They have Christmas decorations and all that, which I'm not really interested in any of that. Um, but this year I was like, oh, let me get some of those paper cutout designs that my mom used to hang on the window. And instead of getting the ones from my childhood, again, because we're not, we have no children. I don't really need to get like juvenilia, like stuff that's, you know, for children. So instead, I went for the super creepy, dark stuff from the 1920s (laughs) and the 1930s, back when people didn't give a shit about scaring children. But you also got the ones from the 70s, right? No, those are from the 40s. Oh, really? Yeah, because, and I know they're from the 40s. That's the other thing about Mad Style, is that I always had a knack for this, uh, uh, for being able to eyeball an aesthetic and tell you what decade it was yes, from in the 20th century. I could say, that. no, that that font says 1930s, or this, this style says 1940. And... There's a set of eight uh, classic Halloween uh, cutouts that are... It's all on our Instagram, by the way. Yeah, I posted Lorenzo them on Instagram. put it on our Instagram yesterday. But there's a set of eight colorful ones. They're all done in orange, green, and black that I remember... Ha- I did have them as a kid, and I remember my mom saying that they are the same ones that she had when she was a kid in the 1940s. Oh, that's awesome. And I can tell by the, the illustration style. And a lot of... You know what a lot of this comes down to is uh, 40 years of reading comic books. And... Huh. vintage comic books all the way up to present day. So I know 
kind of instinctively what nineteen thirty what a nineteen thirties design uh, or, you know yeah. uh, illustration aesthetic huh. looks like as opposed to a nineteen forties one. So the first set that we bought is I would say it was probably from the nineteen twenties or early thirties, and the second set we bought I can tell by the style it's mm-hmm. from the nineteen forties. Um, that's all. And like I said, we got the salt and pepper shakers. We got the runner. We got the little felt cats. We're not going to put any candy out. We live in a loft in a in a in a you know a building. No, but with it was other cute because units. we we texted them to. We sent pictures to your sisters, my sisters, and who they all have kids and live in the suburbs. And my oldest sister immediately went out and, and bought she's them. like, "Where can I get these?" And she went out and she ordered them immediately. They are really cute. And, yeah, and we do like vintage stuff a lot. So, so yeah, they, that's what's going on aesthetically in yes, Tilo's yes, life yes, right yes, now. Yes. So they're on Instagram right now. I posted uh, the pictures if you want to see them real quick. I'm putting you on the spot before we get into the main oh, topic dear. of this, of this um, podcast, which is going to be a review of the new Netflix boys in the band adaptation. But before we get into that, yeah. I just wanted to give you a chance to say what you thought of drag race Holland. Two episodes have aired where we have mm-hmm. reviews for both of them. Second one's going up today. Uh, what do you think? Just general. Um, in general, I, I like them because they're different in a way. They're the same, pretty much. But they're different because they, they when it's from a different country, uh, no matter how uh, much they want to uh, stick to the format, uh, you know, the American format, uh, they can't help it but, you know, bring their own culture uh, and customs and, you know, traditions right. or whatever, jokes and, and everything. Uh, to the show and I love that and you can see that you can see with the uh, Dutch version um, it's funny I'm always curious uh, uh, I understand some of it because I speak German um, and I'm always fascinated by the same thing with the uh, British version um, the jokes and how they joke about things because you know sometimes they're not the same it's not the same type of humor or, right. or jokes and so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that Um how more open uh, the drag queens are to do certain things, uh, you know. Uh, I, um, after two episodes of Drag Race Holland, I'm ready to say these girls are way, way more polished than the girls on Drag Race UK or Canada's Drag right, Race. Right, I agree. Um, I don't want to make generalizations, but I kind of assumed that going into, I'm like, hmm, the Netherlands, I would expect that drag scene to be pretty freaking, you know, high end. And it, these girls are, they are high end. Um, I like it costumes. was funny yeah. like going everything. into this episode, this last episode, I was like, hmm, it seems like the Holland girls are really very supportive and not very bitchy at all. And then this episode, I was like, oh, never mind. They The claws came out. Oh, my God. Yeah. But but the mini challenge was hilarious. Um, I just love it. Uh, the, the second episode uh, uh, mini challenge was fun. They had to create uh, their own um, workout videos, which... I'm pretty sure I know Drag Race has had the same challenge. Yeah, but again, it, it goes back to what I said. It, you can feel that it's a, you know watching it. You can tell that it's a little different because they're it's a different type of humor, a different type of attitude in a way. Yeah. So I I appreciate that a lot. And um, I I really have to give a shout out to Fred Van Leer who is fantastic as the host. He is so funny. He is the best thing I've seen outside the Drag Race franchise. I mean, I liked the um, UK co-hosts that were with, uh, that on that were on either side of Rue, right. but um, as, as a, you know, she, let's just say, Fred blows Brooklyn Heights out of the water well, as a course, hostess. Of course, of um, course. 
Um, he's so high energy. He's actually really funny. He's so bitchy gay. Like, it, it's just so get, draggy. The energy is there and, uh, and in a way that Brooklyn couldn't manage. Right. Uh, and Brooklyn was always aware of the camera. Yes. That's, that's how I felt. Yes. Um, but now he's funny. I mean... Fred uh, Van Leer is really funny. Yeah, and he's on all the time. I love and, him walking into the workroom in stiletto right, heels and, right. and a pair of jeans. And um, you know me with voices. Uh, now... All I can think of, he sounds like Walter Mercado. <laughs> if you listen to his voice. I don't get that at all. Yes, I do. So I'm like listening to like Walter Mercado in, in Dutch. Uh, but he's so funny. I'm so fascinated by the fact that the Queens will all lapse into English halfway through a sentence. I know. All of them. And the interesting thing is they don't really have a much of an accent when they lapse. Because You would young. think it would be like, you know, some sort of thick. But no, they. it's perfect american style english and they do it effortlessly well it, de- it depends where you come from uh, in europe but some countries they get that i mean they they study the netherlands i think has one of the highest english speaking right, right they uh, learn population very young yeah uh they learn english very young and 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 they you know your brother lives in the netherlands yes and they um and you watch tv you watch everything now you know you have so much access to the language and, right and if you're young um, then you, you, you know, you learn the language re- really quickly. You um, see that a lot in Europe. I mean, wherever you, wherever you travel in Europe, you know, people speak English. Yeah. So, um, all right. I just wanted to see what you thought of that. No, I'm, 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 I'm loving the show. I was laughing my ass off. You were, uh, I could hear you. Um, watching the second episode. I loved it. Loved it. And, and it's funny cause every now and then I'm like, uh, you know, every time they have a new version, I'm like, Oh, here we go again. But then I just, I get sucked into it again. I, get I still love yeah. these freaking Queens. And I wondered that when we wrote our book, I was like, okay, well, we've done 10 straight years of blogging about this show. Then we wrote an 80,000-word book on the topic. Are we really done with Drag Race after that? But I am not. I still enjoy it. I get bored by the end of a season, but literally every single reality competition, I get bored by the end of a season. They all go on a little bit too long. Uh, Project Runway is another example of that. But I also think it goes back to what I said last uh, podcast, I think, uh, that... It has to do with personalities. The, the, you know, Drag right. Race, it's a lot about the person, mm-hmm. the individual, uh, the queen. Mm-hmm. So you get unique, different people all the time, as opposed to watching uh, um, Project Runway, for example, because, you know, no matter what, it's still clothes. You know, it's yeah. the same, same stuff. Same stuff. Uh, different versions, but, you know, we're talking about fashion and clothes. And in this case, it's a little different, you know, different people with different stories, different background, and, you know. So I do, I, I still love it. I still enjoy watching the show. Me too. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we jump into the main topic? You can't talk about the Queen's Gambit, even though I know you watched I know. all of the episodes. I watched, I watched. And we can't talk about the crown, even though we've seen the anything. first four episodes. I know. I, Dying. I can't talk about anything I've been watching, um, but yeah. I sent my sister's uh, screenshots of, of, I didn't send them screenshots, I took a picture on my phone of the uh, actress who plays Diana, because I'm especially my older sister, she, right. I remember her getting up at five in the morning to watch the royal wedding, Diana and Charles's wedding, she's only a couple of years younger than Diana would have been. And um, she was like, oh, my God, when she saw pictures I we, of her. We, I can't give anything else I away. I mean, you can, we, we sent them uh, promo shots, and you can see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see them out there on the, uh, on, on the Internet uh, if you look for them. Uh, yeah, they, they're doing a good job. There. But we can't say Yeah, anything. we can't say anything. I think we're embargoed for another month on that. We're embargoed yes. on Queen's Gambit for a little while. 
But uh, anything else? No, that's it. Any uh, uh, movies lighting your fire or? No, 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 not really. I've been watching a lot of, of HBO stuff. Uh, it's funny because I, I switched now. I've been watching The Vow and what's the other one? The uh, We we Are Who we, we Are. I'm still enjoying both of them. Um, yeah, and I'm taking my time like right. you do. Right. Um, just watching one episode now or two episodes and waiting a little bit. Uh, because I appreciate them more that, and I watch them over and over again. This is yeah, I'm I'm a little crazy. You're when a little he, crazy. Yeah. Yes, when it comes to television, I like to watch the same episode like 20 times. That's just me. Anyway, that is you. <laughs> uh, but one thing we can talk about, which we got to see a screening of the other night, was is the new um, Netflix adaptation of the seminal. Uh, queer play um, The Boys in the Band which uh, bowed on Broadway in 1968 it was written by Mark Crowley who was an openly gay playwright uh, they made a film in 1970 directed by William Friedkin where they just basically took the entire Broadway cast and shot shot the play on a soundstage and they then in 2018 Ryan Murphy produced uh a new version for a revival for Broadway that was very well received, right? Starring a bunch of A and B list out gay actors, uh, and um, directed by Joe Mantella, who so the the 2018 who was a gay man. So the 2018 production Broadway production was notable because everybody involved in it was an out gay man, um, and that's significant when you look at the play itself and the history of the play and how it has evolved over time, how the perception of the play has evolved over time. Uh, So we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to, there's, I mean, spoilers. I don't know. It's not, it's not the kind of story that has twists and turns. I don't think we can really spoil anything Mm. for you. No. uh, Especially since it is a 50 year old play. And there's so much material out there. You can actually watch a documentary about the first movie. Yes. uh, And the play and picking the actors. You can see the 1970 version of the um, film. You can find it online in, in a perhaps not entirely legal version, but it is out there. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't appear to be on any streaming services. And after we watched the screening the other night, I literally, like, immediately went looking for it and then sat through the whole 1970 version to refresh my memory. I saw the 1970 version of the film, the 1970 filmed version. I wasn't in high school. I had to have been in college. I may even have seen it as part of my film school curriculum, or maybe it was just one of those things I secretly rented from video stores when I was trying to figure out my own (laughs) gayness. And like, I mean, so, so, so many gay men who um, say came of age before the 21st century. uh, I had not a super great reaction to the film, to the to to what it was saying and what those characters were like. I was in my twenties. It was you know twenty plus years post Stonewall. In fact, we were well into the AIDS crisis at that point. And the play, as written, is an uh, you know an artifact of pre Stonewall white cis gay male, mostly white cis gay male life, which. It's important to put that in context because if you if you're coming into this cold, first off, I can say we recommend the new version, right? Absolutely, no, absolutely, yeah, I do. Absolutely recommend the new version. You should watch it. Uh, I, I I totally give it a thumbs up. I'm going to critique some things as we go through this, but um, I had a problem with 
watching it when I was a gay man struggling with my identity and coming to terms with it in like the late 80s, early 90s, um, watching this this artifact of pre-Stonewall life at where every character was full of self-loathing and all they do is attack each other uh, in, in some really horrible ways, uh, uh, attack each other's looks, attack each other's gayness, attack each other's effeminacy. And it was not the image of gay life I wanted. Believe me, uh, you know, I am so happy for young gay guys who are growing up with, you know, Love, Victor, or whatever. These really, you know, affirming portrayals of, uh, you know, gay male life that that celebrates it and gives any kid who's watching it a reason to want to right. come out, who gives them something to aspire to. Boys in the Band is not aspirational. No, I don't know any gay man who would look at that play and say, yes, that's the life I want. It's just, it's not. It's its not. Uh, for many, many, many years after uh, the first movie came out, men in the gay community, the general consensus in the gay male community was that it was an ugly portrayal of pre-Stonewall life, and it didn't have anything to do with, say, you know, the AIDS epidemic or ACT UP or, you know, the kind of, you know, radical queerness that was coming to the fore in the 80s and the 90s. So it, the play was cast aside in a lot of ways. And I felt that way about it myself. I'm talking mm -hmm. too much. Go ahead. No, what I, were your thoughts about it when you were younger? Yes. Okay. So when I was young, I appreciate it very much. Because, Did you? Yes, because at the time when I was younger, um, I loved everything gay. Everything that Fair. I could put my hands on or watch and read. I was just obsessed with, with finding things. I mean, it was, I was thrilled to find anything about my identity. So, so yes, I loved it. Uh, thought it was bitchy. Didn't quite understand. But at the same time, I was just thrilled to see gay people talking and acting gay, um, on, you know, on a screen. So, so I, I liked it. Uh, I, I think to me, Here's my thing. I think with if you're gay, uh, most people uh, of a certain age, I'd say, know the they know the play. They know the play, or they know the movie. They know the story behind the boys in the band. Right. Um, maybe the younger generation have no idea. And I think if you watch the new version without knowing anything about the history of the play or the movie or everything about it, uh, you'll be, uh, maybe you'll, you'll feel a little weird or conflicted about it. It's uh, not the modern portrayal of gay male no. life that you would see in something like, I don't know, Love, Victor, or even Will and Grace or anything like right. that. Right, and it's not very uplifting and positive. No, uh, not at uh, all. Yes, I to me it's like watching a movie about, uh, uh, like, a family during Thanksgiving getting into a fight or whatever, that type of thing. You know, it's just about relationships. Right. It's about, you know, you. it's hard to watch, but you relate to it. That's how I see One thing I do think uh, the newer production does get across that I never understood about the, the older production was the fact that these men are friends. Right. Uh, I remember watching the old production, and even rewatching the production the other night, the 1970 version. I, I was like, "Yeah, you don't get the sense. You just feel like these people are are in a cage together, crabs in a bucket, pulling each other down." It 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 didn't feel. I didn't feel a sense of community or family 
watching the 1970 version. And I think that's part of the reason why gay men uh, tended to reject it in the post-Stonewall era. I just, I know you want to speak. Just real quick, this version, there's little moments here and there, especially at the very end, when uh, Zachary Quinto says to Jim Parsons, I'll call you tomorrow. And I was like, ah, after two hours of them ripping each other to shreds in the nastiest freaking way. And there was something so tender in the way he said that line that I was like, yeah, okay, I see it. Michael and Harold are friends. Right. I think that's the thing about the play and the movie, original ones, um, is that they use that relationship, that, that set, that scene, to talk about gay men at the time. And, yes. they, and they use friendship. They use their friendship to do that, to, to voice those those struggles and, and fears and, 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 and all that. So it does, yeah, it does feel harsh most of the time. Um, yes, many, many times I was watching the movie, the original one at the time, and thinking, my, would I talk to my friends like that? I or, always used to think, I, why are these men even together? They right. all hate each other. Would I really have that kind of relationship? Right. And, and the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, because... I remember being young and gay. Uh, my friends were everything. Yeah. I was thrilled that I found someone like me. Right. So you immediately became friends with them. Uh, and you kind of like went through everything with them. Right. Uh, happy or sad. So I kind of understand. Uh, it is plausible and it is. Plausible. Oh, yes. Uh, Even the 70s version is. Right. It is a snapshot of, I feel, a relatively accurate snapshot of a certain style of gay male socializing right and uh, even if you don't believe their um dialogues or you don't believe their conversation um whatever they're talking about it's very true that's exactly it um even now even in in 2020 watching the 2020 version of it mm-hmm. there were certain lines where i was like damn is that still true um, Mark Crowley came in, the playwright came in for years and years and years of criticism from the gay community as just this, this dinosaur who wrote an artifact, but he died in March at the age of like 90. He got to see the 2018 production. He got to see this version of the film before he died. So, and he, he, he went out on a high note. Like he, it, I, I was happy for him that right. it, cause I can remember when it was trashed among the gay intellectual set and the gay critical set. Um, but it, it received its moment in the sun again. And I, I do think, I don't think it's a flawed play. I actually think as in, ter- in as a piece of theater, it's actually extremely good. It's extremely well-written. Right. Um, and there are some amazing, you know, confrontations, amazing uh, monologues that get, get put out there. And I think any male actor would love to tear into those lines. If you're an actor, I think that's a fantastic, uh, you know, uh, script. Because it's the perfect theatrical setting. It is a party where everybody reveals deep, dark truths about themselves and attack each other. So that's the kind of thing an actor frickin' lives for. I think it really is an actor's play. Like I said, if you're really interested, if you really enjoy the the new movie and you want to dig into more, you know, history and all that. There are documentaries about out there talking about the process of selecting the, the first actors, the, the original version and all that, what they went through and, you know, everything. Um, for the time, it was, it was groundbreaking. Um, and I think you can look at it and say, well, what well, they pretty much just replicated the whole thing. 
doing the movie. You know, it's pretty much the same line by line. Right. Everything. But, and that's been done many, many times. I mean, there are... There's no difference. No difference. I watched the 1970 version. I'm like, every single line is still there. Every... Right. No, I mean the play also. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. The original play in terms of like, they pretty much... it's Yeah, both versions of the film basically took the play as written and put it on film. I don't think they changed much for the 2020 version. And it does feel a little bit like a 40s, 50s kind of movie when they do the same thing. They repeat the same movie from a play that was original. Right, right, right. It feels that way a little bit, like they're just repeating everything. Um, Having said that, I feel like Joe Mantello, the director of the... 2020 play and film made the same mistakes that William Friedkin made when he adapted the play for film, which is that he, um, he didn't adapt it for film. It's it. They just took a play and filmed it. Right. Right. And I very much have the opinion that that almost never truly works. It almost works in boys in the band, especially this version of boys in the band because of the uh, intensity of the performances, um, and the sort of A-list quality of the actor, you know, the cast. But um, even this version of it, it's so stagey. It's so um, everybody's talking, then everybody be- is quiet, and then a person stands in the center of the room and gives a long monologue, right. which where they say horrible things to everybody else in the room who just sits there and listens to it. And I, that works on a stage. It, it really doesn't work in film. Um, characters will say something and then suddenly retreat into, you know, recede into the background for no reason and not say anything for 20 minutes while someone else, right. they all sort of take turns and it, it does have, it, it's kind of hard to escape that quality of it because the entire story takes place in one apartment during one evening. Right. There's no way to get around that cinematically. Now, Joe Mantello tried to do that. He did the same thing Friedkin did, which is there are opening scenes in the which show the men in the out in the city as they are on their way to the party. They're getting into cabs. They're on the subway. They're in a bar cruising other guys. Whatever. Um, all of that is staged almost exactly the same. But um, he also added flashbacks, right? Where you know because each of the characters gets a chance to tell some story about their life or, or some secret about their life, and in this instance, um, and Friedkin didn't do this in nineteen. I don't think you know he didn't, but Mantello did it in twenty twenty. Where they, there's flashbacks to scenes, and I don't think that works all that well. I didn't think it'd work at all. Yeah, and then the other thing is Mantello gives almost all of the characters a moment as an a, an ending. Uh, it shows them leaving the party and, and in one in, in it, several instances follows them outside as they leave the party. And again, I don't think that works all that well. The great thing about Friedkin's version and the play version and the play itself is that it ends, it just ends. It literally ends with a closed door. Someone walks out the door, closes, says a line and closes it behind them, fade to black. And I honestly think that works better than uh-huh. what Mantello tried to do. It's not a world you can expand on. The whole point to it is that they're in this freaking cage together. In a closet, literally. Yeah, tearing Mm -hmm. each other apart. Yeah, kind of a... Uh, So when you start opening up with flashbacks and scenes of them out running through the streets of New York, and I'm like, no, that doesn't work. No, the whole point is that they are stuck in this... They are crabs in a bucket pulling each other down. Um, If you show them out in the world cruising other men or whatever, it it loses something. Um, 
I would have rather seen Mantello devote some time to figuring out how to make it less stagey, um, you know, figuring out how to direct the actress for screen, rather than tacking on these scenes. And there's not too much of it. I, I It really only adds up to about three minutes of screen time, these added scenes. Um, do you yeah. want to add anything? Because yeah. I'm going to move on to another point. But no, go ahead. I, I think that, like I said, if you if you know the if you know the movie, the old movie, the the old play, and all that, I think you you be you'll be. I think it'd be easier for you to accept whatever you watch on Netflix. Um, if you're just watching the Netflix version and, and you don't know anything about it, you might find it, like you say, a little stagey. You know, you find that you know it's a little weird. And why are they yelling at each other? Um, but if you give it a chance and pay attention to the dialogue and 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 listen to what they're saying, I think you get a better understanding. It it to me, it's like I said, it's like watching a movie about a family celebrating Thanksgiving and they 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 start talking about things from the past and old fights and, and right. grudges and all that kind of thing. And, um, and they're, you know, but they're still family. They still love each other. Right. Uh, so I, I feel that way about the, uh, the boys in the band. Um, they're venting things that happen to them. Um, they're, they're criticizing each other, uh, and they're throwing things at each other, uh, almost in a defensive kind of way. Um, and uh, and then you understand, but they're still friends. They're right, still right, friends. Right. They still they still have each other in a way. Well, this this is a great segue into what the next point I wanted to bring up, which is the the cast itself, the choices that were made in this cast, and how that affects this inter this version of the play. Um, like I said, everybody involved was is an out gay man in 2020, which means something very, very different from being an out gay actor in, say, 1970, when the other film was made. The, the original cast, the original Broadway and film cast, uh, was a mix of gay and straight men. And as I just implied, to be a gay, say, actor, Broadway actor, in to be an, an out gay Broadway actor in 1970 is not the same thing as being an out gay TV star or movie star. It was it's career not suicide the same. In, a, in some, some ways. Career it's what, su suicide. Career suicide. Suicide. Oh, I didn't know what you were saying. Uh, um, yes. Uh, for some uh, but people. it was also, I mean, gay men back then in, the, in, the, in that era would, they weren't like coming out on the cover of magazines to declare their gayness. I mean, right. they were out, but I don't think many of them did press for the film where they talked about being out because that's not how gay celebrities talked about themselves back then. They would either imply it or deny it, but they never came right out. So no one in the original play was what I would have called out and proud. They were as out as they could be professionally right, at right. that time. That's a very different feeling from a play where everybody, from a version of it where not only is everybody out, but big, almost all of those actors came out publicly after they became fat. Matt Bomer did, Andrew mm -hmm. Rannells did, Jim Parson did, Tuck Watkins did. They all came out after years of being relatively famous. And it's a, it, it's interesting to, to, to when you think about it, because most of these actors, some of them, are married with kids. It's a whole different life. It's a whole different life. And um, I do want to talk about um, what whether that energy changed the, the play. Um, it... I mean, change this version of it, this adaptation of it. And I, I went into it thinking it would. In some ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. I think one of the, my, and I said this all through it as we were watching it, that my main, main problem with the cast, it's not really their fault, but they're all too good looking. Um, they, I mean, when you 
when you watch the original, or even the lines that they utter in this version of the play, there is so much self-loathing about how ugly they are. And, and I'm like, well, that's really not... Like, Matt Bomer's character is supposed to be neurotic and in therapy all the time and a total nervous wreck, which I'm not saying a man who looks like that wouldn't be neurotic and wouldn't put... I'm like, well, I don't know how well he can delve into that sort of character because I don't buy it. Um, Matt Bomer is... Hmm, this is going to be mean, but I, I do think Matt Bomer has never pushed himself as an actor. He he does tend to rely on his looks to do a lot of the work. And I don't see any difference in that right now. Ooh. Um, same thing <laughs> okay. with, like, I don't know. Oh, I, maybe this is because I think he's so freaking hot. He makes oh, my dear. knees weak. Is Tuck Watkins, who is so fucking hot. And now, granted, you don't see his body in this because he's in a suit through the whole thing. But my God, that man has the body of death. And I mean, it's nothing wrong with that character being good looking. In fact, another character comments on how good looking he is. But it's just distractingly good looking. Um, um, Zachary Quinto's character is defined by how ugly he thinks he is. He literally introduces himself as an ugly pockmarked right. Jew fairy. And that made a lot of sense when the original actor was, was I can't remember his first name, but the last name was Fry. I can't remember his first name. Um, Kenneth Fry, I think it was. I don't mean to be mean, but he, he wasn't as good looking as Zachary. The and type. he actually did yeah. have bad skin, which is why I think that line was written right. for him. They had a, they put a few makeup pockmarks on Zachary Quinto, but he's, He's too good looking to refer to himself that or way. They tried with the wig and all that. But, exactly. But but, it, but still, exactly. It's like, well, is, okay, is a handsome this man. tall, strapping, dark, good looking. Yeah, it just doesn't, the lines don't land the same way. Um, Jim Parsons. Uh, I think he's actually excellent in the role. Um, I don't think he tends to bring much new to it, especially since. We just saw him play the shittiest, nastiest queen of all time in Hollywood, Ryan Murphy's production of Hollywood. Right. And the character of Michael is another shitty, nasty queen. So it's it's just like, well, okay, we know you can do this kind of character. You can do really, really snotty, bitchy queen. And he does it really well. And and he he does more than anybody else except for... Um, um, I have to get his name because I don't know him. Michael Benjamin Washington, who was the only black character um those two performances really tap into their insecurity like you believe it i believe that jim parsons is that insecure and that self-loathing and i believed the pain of bernard he's the black character uh in recounting his um his crush on a white boy uh, he brought something to that. that no, was, I, I think it was phenomenal. I thought he was... Um, hit the pain in that the telling of that story was just really, really well done. I think done. it was very good. They also did something interesting in the casting. The character of Emery, they cast uh, Robin de Jesus. They, car- they cast him as a Latin man. He is not written as a Latin man, but he is played to the hilt as this and he's Latin fan-snapping queen. Now, the original... Uh, version of the character of Emery is the most flamboyant one who is, you know, who does literally sashay around the apartment, uh, uh, even in the 70 version. But it hits differently when it's a Latin queen. Right, I agree. uh, Who is really indulging in that sense of Latin queerness. Um, And 
I think that was a really smart choice, even though the whole time I was thinking, I don't know any Latin man with the name of Emery, but whatever. (laughs) It allowed the, without rewriting the play, it allowed the interactions between the characters to take on a different tone. Uh, You know, at one point, um, one character calls Emery a loser. And when that character is being played uh, by someone who isn't, necessarily white uh, yeah yeah it it actually changes it does and then the, the interactions between emery the latin man and um i can never remember the name uh, bernard the black man because they do have several interactions during this party they take a different flavor when it's two men of color I agree. surrounded by white men who are all being nasty to their them. dialogues their conversation it, it takes it, a different it's taken to a whole new level because it, you know, you're you're not white, and it becomes you, an indictment of gay of right. white gay male social right. norms, which the original play did not manage to do. So that part works. Um, I think, but like I said, they're all just a a little too good looking for me. I agree. I think Jim Parsons was good, but every now and then I think he was way over the top. Well, isn't that character supposed to be? Over I know, the top? but sometimes it was a little too much for me. Okay, but but I thought he was great. Uh, the emotion was there. Um, he, he was great, especially in the beginning. I thought he really nailed the character right from the get-go. Um, I thought everybody did a good job. Um, I, I really, I, I, I do. I, I do think they're all, they all embodied the, the, the character and, and the, uh, the, the struggle of each, each right. one of them. Um, oh, here, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I thought, I thought, I, th- I thought they were good. I thought Just to go good. back to my other point, there is a character called Cowboy who is a yes. sex worker who was hired <laughs> for the birthday boy at this birthday party. Um, and he is this written as written. He is this figure of desire that all the men sort of hover around during the party. And because they're so full of self-loathing, he's the one that gets attacked the most. Now, in the original play and in the original film, I would suggest that the guy who they cast to play him was the best-looking member of the cast. Yes. That's not really true here. And, I mean, Charlie Carver is a good-looking guy, no doubt about it, but he's just one good-looking white guy in a room full of them, and I could name two or three who are, in my opinion, much, much better-looking than him. So it, it didn't—I'm like, okay— that that I, whole I, dynamic doesn't I totally work. Agree. Uh, if you watch the the play, the original play or the movie, original movie, you can see that he, he is this is clearly, figure on a pedestal. Yeah, he, he is he he is clearly the hot hooker. Right. Um, Here he's Carver, the average looking hooker. Yeah, Charlie Carver <laughs> is very handsome. He is, but um, but he just, he looks just like everybody in the. He did. He now. really did, and I'm like, well, that doesn't that really doesn't work for me. The the whole point of that character is that he makes all the other men in the room defensive and nervous because he's so hot and dumb the character is dumb which is a bit of a cliche i have to admit that doesn't age all that well like writing sex workers like they're stupid right it's not very but whatever it's 1968 and maybe they were dumber back then i don't know (laughs) but um oh i don't want to go there but but yes I, i that is the one character that really didn't work for me and it it did throw the adaptation off because i feel like cowboy was just this central figure in the original version, and he feels so sidelined in this I version. I agree, I agree. There's not much. They didn't give him much. No. Um, it, it feels like in the original version of the play, they're all acting that way because there's a good-looking sex worker there. And in this version, it's like he's almost an afterthought. Right. Um, the, uh, the sets are beautiful. It's mu- The set is much... It's really interesting. 
Because I, and this was one of the reasons I immediately watched the original right mm-hmm. after I watched this one because I was like, well, I can't remember what the set looked like. I know that they had the same terrace and everything. I know they did the same scene where they danced to Heat Wave on the terrace. It's exactly the same. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I couldn't remember the apartment. So I went back to watch it. And it's interesting because in the 70s version, it really looks like a set. And it doesn't really look all that New Yorky to me. Whereas this version, it's also a nicer it's, apartment, yes. it's cleaner and nicer. Whereas this version, I'm like, yeah, well, this looks like a New Yorker's apartment in 1968. It's well appointed because he's gay and because that character lives outside his means, as other people mentioned to him. But like, I noticed little things like he had a shitty kitchen with right. a really old refrigerator in it. And he had like chipped tiles in his bathroom and like, you know, mildew on his grout. And the, the original version didn't have that. But this I felt I'm like, yeah, that feels that feels like I've been in New York apartments and not of course they're not all like that, but you know, the walk ups, the pre war walk ups and all that they're stuff. They're like that. <laughs> um yeah, that felt the the apartment felt more um lived in. It it looked like a real apartment and there were a couple of times the outside backdrop is so good that I really wondered if like you can see the buildings across the street and everything for a split second I was like did they actually shoot this on, I know, lo- it, on location it right. really did look there real. are some scenes that I'm like is that a real apartment because no it, it, it but it, it looks so real yeah it, they did a really good job on the art direction it, right. it looked like a game and that's the other thing I didn't think the original version I was like yeah all right that's a nice enough apartment but Jim Parsons apartment I was like <laughs> it's first a off apartment. it looks like someplace Jim Parsons would live specifically but in general it looks like a gay apartment it just does uh with the you know the french posters on the wall and everything like that even today i think single gay men still decorate their apartments much in the same way michael did we also talk about the costumes that at first you didn't think i was so wrong on that i i we were watching it like and remember i hadn't seen the friedkin version in many 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 years and i only had vague memories of it but when they were all at the party, I was like, I don't love this costume design because none of them look like 1968 to me, except for Zachary Quinto, who shows up in this stunning green velvet suit and purple tie. <laughs> um, but then I watched the original and I, and I was like, oh, yeah, they're all kind of non-committally sort of straight passing dress. Right. They're all in like sweaters mm-hmm. and respectable shirts and that sort of thing. And I, I'm like, yeah, I forget. Like, not everybody dressed like they were going to the Stonewall back then. I mean, <laughs> these men dressed... To pass. They tried to pass. So they dressed fairly, quote unquote, normally. Um, So I was wrong about the costumes. I originally thought they should be a lot more flamboyant or maybe a little bit more 1968 looking. But um, no, that's I mean, in the original version of the play, there's polo or original version of the movie polo shirts and khakis and sweaters. And, you know, it's very respectable clothing. And they stuck with that. And it was the right choice. In the end, I was like, no, it wouldn't have made sense for them to be all dressed really flamboyantly because the whole point is that they all, this is pre-Stonewall. They all could have gone to jail. I know, Or exactly. been put in a mental institution. That, you know, this, so you do need to remember, try and remember that while you're watching it. Uh, that this really is, it's not just that this was a long time ago and things were different. It was, no, these men were outlaws. Um, and they lived in a world that would have, love to have found a reason to throw them in jail. Right. You have to watch it thinking that you have to remember that they're doing the 70s version. They're still doing it. It's, it's set in. Yeah, they didn't yeah. update. It's, they, it's it not wouldn't like a work. 2020 version. Yeah. It wouldn't work as a 2020 right, right. version. And if you here's what I think. If you enjoyed the this version of the movie uh, and you have the time and interest, I highly recommend that you go back and, and 
Just if you re- can find it, if you can wink, find wink. it, watch the, the the old version, or you can even you know buy rent or whatever. I don't um, think you can. You can. I don't think it's on any yeah. streaming. Anyway, services. if you can find it, watch it. Uh, read a little bit about it. Uh, how they came up with the idea of the play and casting everyone, and it's a fascinating uh, gay piece of gay history. I think. Yeah, I really appreciate this version for giving all of these you know, some of whom are big names, big name gay, out gay actors, uh, a chance to dive into this material. I agree. From the perspective of liberated gay men whose lives are a hell of a lot easier than the lives of the characters they're depicting. However, I assumed that that change in casting and the change in the times would have allowed these actors to explore things that the original actors couldn't. And I don't know if they just weren't up to the task or if the the direction wasn't up, but they didn't. Uh, I don't feel like, oh, this this feels like, you know, what, like they're really diving in, right. you know, finding things that the original actors maybe couldn't. No, it's, I mean, all the characters are interpreted exactly the same. That's not really a criticism because the play is, well, this is kind of a criticism of the play. The play is probably a little overwritten. I agree. I agree. Um, like, they don't talk like real people. They talk like they're, it's very chatty, chatty, you know, very stagey, very right. monologue-y. Um, and because, you know, Murphy, the producer, and Mantello, the director, did not... I know Mark Crowley was involved in this screenplay, and none of them really seemed to change anything to allow the actors to, you know, come at these roles from a different direction. Um, and I do feel like that was a missed opportunity. Uh, I, I do kind of wish someone had gone in and, and fiddled with the play a little bit uh, so that the actors could t- give mm-hmm. their portrayals something that the original portrayals didn't have. And um, I don't think they did. Having watched the free conversion in 1970, it is equally as well acted. All mm-hmm. the guys in the original cast are very they're good. Great. Very they're great. good in yes, their roles. Great. In fact, I think that's why the boys in the band lasted. Even though people, gay men, were rejecting it for, we still couldn't top, top, stop talking about it for decades and decades and decades. Right. We still had to wrestle with this extremely well-written, extremely well-acted, extremely um, on-point portrayal of stuff that we all didn't want to remember in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. I think the old crowd rejected because it was like looking at yourself in a mirror. Yeah. Um, um, And, and, you know, it it was tough to watch because it was pretty much watching your life or uh, the life of your friend or someone you know. And they were voicing things that you as, uh, you know, a queer man in the 20th century um, might not have had the nerve to say out loud. Right. They were voicing some fairly dark and depressing thoughts about themselves and their place in the world. Right. And even if they didn't change anything uh, with this new version, I mean, we still go through the same issues. We still go through some of the fights and, and some of the things um, that, you know, people went back there in the 70s. I mean, you know. No, there are moments in the in there where I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's what gay male socialism can be like. But I can remember specific lines um, hitting differently when I was a young man, uh, like that one line that, that Michael says near the end, if we could only learn to love each other or right. love ourselves. Right. Uh, and I can remember how painful, painful, painful it was to hear that line when I was, say, 22. And I'm watching it now, and I'm like, and I remember something like that doesn't, 
I, it's not my life. It's I. I'm happy to say I have no self-loathing. I don't. And I don't live in a world that encourages me to hate myself. I'm very lucky for that and very thankful to my queer forebears for making that world for me. But um, no, I, 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 it doesn't have the same... I don't recognize myself in these characters as much mm-hmm. um, as I did when I was in my 20s. Yeah, which is, I'm a, that's a good thing, I It I'd is say. a good thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's all. It, it the The... I remember finding the the original version very painful to sit through. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find that at all with this version because I'm I know who I am. I live in a world that isn't trying to kill me and and you know, it's so I can look at it with some distance and I can, you know, enjoy it for what it is. Right. I don't know. Do we have anything else? No, I I, I recommend it. I think it's 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 a great production. Uh, and yeah, I, I'd say yes, comes out give on it a Wednesday try. of next week. Okay. Uh, which I can't remember what the date is. The thirtieth maybe? I can't no. What's today? Yeah, it comes out on the 30th. Um, oh, oh, we didn't even get to the best part. Bomer dick. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Tom. Yep, there's Bomer noodle in this one. Oh You're all going to rush to watch it now. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, full I frontal. I can't believe that's how we're into the podcast. Um, you don't see much of it. You see a glimpse of it. But we were both like, oh, okay, we're seeing Matt Bomer's dick on Netflix. And then in one of the flashbacks, there's... There's full on, yeah. I mean, there's there's dicks <laughs> hey, floating around in your face. I, I, it's not X-rated. No. It's just they they. And again, I feel like that's a little bit true. Like you know, if you are ever in a gay male social setting, like I've said this before about one of the great things about uh, RuPaul's Drag Race that we loved when when it first came out was that it was a bunch of gay men sitting around making jokes about dicks <laughs> and blowjobs, and I, we were both like, well, that's what it is. That's what it's like. So to have a little bit of um, full frontal male nudity, actually, it's not it's not extraneous. It's it not actually works. It's just part of the scene. Well, there is a flashback to two well, characters having yeah. sex. And I did turn to you and I was like, it's not supposed to be hot. That is the one thing. I'm like, that's not supposed to be a hot scene. It's supposed to be sort of seedy and embarrassing. And the two actors are just too good looking to make it that way. Uh, this goes to the casting. Um, uh, out gay actors in 2020 there's a high likelihood that they have gym bodies and great skin. And, you know, so this cast is all much, much better looking than the original cast. Um, but I, yes, absolutely recommend this film. I mean, I have some minor criticisms of it, but a lot of it comes down <laughs> to, uh, you know, us as, as gay men who came of age in the 20th century, we're going to approach this film. This is why we wanted to spend this podcast talking about it, because we felt, all right, we're not just going to review it. We're going to talk about our own feelings, you know, mm-hmm. as, as gay men watching it and how different they were when we first saw the film like 30 years ago. Uh, that's all. Recommended. Yes, Basically a much. B plus, maybe A minus kind of, if I had to grade it, it's, right. it's really good. And um, I don't know... I guess it would be eligible for Oscars. I mean, other Netflix films have been, gone up for... So, I don't know. I mean... We'll see. Yeah. I think if I had to pick out anybody who gave an award-winning performance, I would say um, Michael Benjamin Washington as Bernard, the black character. Right, right. He's really, really um, good. I think Robin DeJesus was actually really good as Emery. Just a loud, obnoxious, sassy queen. You know, snapping right. her fan and being a bitch to everyone. And... Um, Jim Parsons, who right. just tears up the scenery. It is the role. 
I mean, it's the role that everybody else revolves right. around. I he just want to star. add that yes, they fight. They they're yelling at each other, but there are some hilarious. Oh yeah, lines yeah, it's a party. Scenes. Yes, it, it is a movie about a party. Yeah, I mean, so there's up moments and down moments. There's right. funny moments, and then it it really takes like a sort of, and I don't mean dark like uh, someone confesses to murder. I just mean dark in the sense that people talk about their darkest inner feelings to each right, other, right, and right. there's tears and there's. They hurt each other and everything. Um, so if you're unaware or if you're unfamiliar with gay male socializing of that era, if the only image you Good have of, yes. of gay men is, say, the, the 21st century version of it that you get to see on TV and in movies, put this in perspective of... Uh, it may seem incredibly ugly at times, but uh, crabs in a bucket. They were tearing each other down because no one was allowed out of that bucket. Um, That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah and mm-hmm. you have to look at it in that. I don't know that the the 2020 film makes that point as well as they could have. I feel like a, a few because this was this play was written pre Stonewall, and we're looking at it 50 years post Stonewall without changes made to the play. So I do feel like they could have tweaked a few things to make that more clear that these aren't just a bunch of nasty men. These are men in a world that wants to that wants to destroy them. Just totally wants to destroy them. And we're not used to seeing white cis gay men portrayed that way. Not in recent years. In recent years, right, white right. gay men are fit and happy and fucking and they have great clothes and you know what I mean? Like it's all so aspirational now, but this was a look at what it was like when no one was aspiring to be gay. There was no such thing as aspirationally gay in 1968. And that's the world all these characters live in. One final thing, the character of Alan, um, the the guy who's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the friend. Yeah, the friend who shows up at the party and no one knows if he's queer or not. And uh, the... 1970 version, I think, comes down rather firmly on the idea of his sexuality, where I feel like the 2020 version uh, comes down firmly on the opposite side. Right. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but I, I do feel like they did sort of... Um, danced around it. No, in more. 1970, they danced around right, it, but right. I feel like That's in the 2020 I mean. version, I'm like, I don't know, you tell me, but I feel like it's fairly obvious that guy is gay and hasn't dealt with it. Um because the actor who's playing him is gay. Right. Um, Brian Hutchison. That's the other thing that was a little off about the casting is he's supposed to be Jim Parsons' college roommate, but he looks 10 years older than him. And that kind of threw me out of it. Anyway, Bomer Dick, those are my final Jesus words. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't believe it. And on that note. <laughs> oh, my God. Kittens, thank you once again for listening to our cartoon voices. Um, please, 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 if you are so inclined, subscribe to this podcast, share it with others, buy our book, whatever. Show your support to Tilo. Yes. And we thank you for it, no matter what we do. form your support takes. We are very, very appreciative. Appreciative of it. So take care of yourselves. We'll yeah. be back next week. Love you. Bye bye. Love you. Bye bye.